Let us turn now for our scripture reading to Second Corinthians, and we'll begin reading from chapter 4, verse 16, and we'll continue down through verse 17 of chapter 5. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us this spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. But we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last Sunday morning, we looked at uh, Psalm 49. And uh, we considered this psalm under uh, the theme uh, that we find in that uh, psalm. That is that we are called to live without fear. And we are to live without fear in the real world. That means that we are to live without fear, yet facing uh, the kind of realities that otherwise might make us afraid. Uh, we live in the real world, and it's God's world. And it's a world, as we saw from that psalm, where materialism degrades people uh, that were made in his image so that they become like beasts. And they are left then uh, unready to face that uh, irresistible tsunami, that tsunami of death that sweeps away every generation 
Some may live higher than others, and some might uh, manage to reach, uh, they might manage to go farther up the hill before that wave overtakes them. But inevitably, this wave of death sweeps everyone away. And yet we're called to live without fear in such a world? Well, yes, and the reason for that is, in Christ, our Lord Jesus, we have redemption. We have deliverance from the, the curse of death. Now, this morning we want to follow up that message of last week with what it means uh, positively to live with this outlook of faith. That outlook at of faith that that perceives the truth and the reality of things that are invisible. We look not upon things that are seen, but on things which are unseen, Paul says in in chapter 4. Uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. But that faith by which we live is not some kind of leap into the unknown. It's not some kind of wishful thinking. It's not simply a choice to believe in something and somehow find value in purpose in our faith. No, our faith is a reasonable faith. It is grounded in facts. And our text zeroes in on those crucial facts. The cross of Christ that towers over the wrecks of time, as that famous hymn says. Christ died and Christ rose again. Now, we did not witness that with our own eyes. But these are facts of history that have been demonstrated. And we know them by the certain testimony of eyewitnesses. We know them by the tremendous impact that these things have had upon our world and upon our lives. So our faith is grounded upon what happened in history. But there is a resulting logic or reason uh, then that uh, flows out of those facts, affecting our lives, affecting our lifestyles and our daily choices. Uh, we judge thus, Paul says in our text. In other words, there are rational conclusions drawn from the gospel. We judge according to uh, settled conclusions that we hold to in our minds and in our understandings. Conclusions that then translate into our aims, our goals, our priorities. We're not driven by our feelings. We're not uh, ruled by our emotions or by our our cravings after new experiences, even religious highs. No, the Christian life and the life of faith is more grounded than that. It's more calm and steady because it's not based on feelings, but it's based on facts that involve a kind of compelling, irresistible logic to them in terms of how they must affect our lives if we really believe them. Live, yes, live without fear in the real world, but positively live by the compelling logic of the gospel. And we're going to be considering that that logic of the gospel as it's described there in verses uh, 14 and 15 
particularly, beginning with this, this fact, Christ died for us. And that's actually repeated uh, numerous times in different ways in our text. One died for all. Again, it says, he died for all. He is the one who died for them. In every instance, this, this little word for describes the relationship between Christ's death and ourselves. He died for us. And of course, this uh, simple fact is at the heart of the Christian message. That the one who is true God, and at the same time true man, he suffered death by crucifixion. He literally expired and was buried. And he also rose again, as our text also proclaims. And this death was for us. It was a death that he died on our behalf. And again, this is so prominent in the gospel message. It is stated in multiple ways. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, as 1 Corinthians 15 declares. I've quoted a number of verses, and they could be multiplied, right? Because it's so prominent, it's so central to the gospel message. It's stated in so many different and wonderful ways. Later on in this chapter, it is stated this way, He, that is God, made him who knew no sin, sin was utterly foreign to his own experience. He made him to be sin for us. That is, to be treated as a sinner, altogether overwhelmed and guilty of sins, which he did not commit. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ died for the ungodly, we read in Romans chapter 4. Now these are various statements of uh, the fact of Christ's death for us. Uh, but the meaning of that, the, the meaning of those words for us is more specific. It's more loaded than is, than is often thought. It's often thought that Christ died for sins or Christ died for sinners in a kind of general sense that by that death, Jesus somehow made salvation possible. Often people will use that language. Christ died to make salvation possible. And the idea is that there at the cross, God showed his hatred of sin. Yes, indeed. There God showed the consequences of sin, certainly, truly. And there God punished sin. Yes, indeed, that is most true. But then the kind of logic that people follow or their thinking is that God will accept that as enough for us if we believe it. And there's a sense in which that is likewise true, but it's understood in such a way that it kind of depends on us to make Jesus' death really accomplish anything for us. As if Christ's death made salvation 
possible, but it's up to us to make it a reality. It's up to us to make the difference between those for whom this death actually saves and those for whom it doesn't. Yes, He died for us, but whether or not we benefit from that all depends on the use that we make of it. Jesus made salvation possible. Now, we need to avail ourselves of that. And if we do that, then that death will be a saving death for us. Now, this might sound like a very subtle and, and uh, confusing uh, distinction that we're going to make, but we need to make it if we're going to understand what our text says. We need to make it in order to understand the accomplishment of Jesus' death upon the cross. That it was not a kind of general death for sin or for sinners making salvation possible, but it's a death for us in such a sense that that death actually redeems, actually saves, actually accomplishes the redemption for whom Christ died. So the meaning is more specific than is often thought. And what is that specific meaning? Well, it means that Christ died as one who personally represented us. And we can make that personal as believers. He died as one who personally represented me before the judgment of God. He intentionally and according to God's purpose died in my place, He died as my substitute. He removed the judgment of God that was against me by bearing it Himself. He did that. He accomplished that. And that means that He not only made my salvation possible, but He secured my salvation forever by what He did in taking my place and suffering the very judgment of God that was against me and which would have destroyed me eternally in hell. And in my place He endured that wrath so that I am freed from it, delivered from it forever, such that it has no claim upon me. This tsunami of judgment as a punishment for sin will never reach me because it overwhelmed my Savior who suffered it in my place. Now, in order to uh, understand from our text that this is what it teaches, that in fact Christ, uh, He sealed my pardon at the cross. He paid the debt and He made me free. We need to pay careful attention to what our text also says in terms of the conclusion that is drawn from the fact that Christ died for us. It's spelled out there in verse 4 or verse uh, 14. We judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. If one died for all, then that all for whom he died, died. Well, what does that mean? 
See, this makes absolutely certain and clear that what Christ did by his death, that by his death, he so represented us in his dying that when he died, we, in effect, died. The sentence of death that we were under because of sin was executed. It was carried out in our substitute. Think of the language of 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam, all die. Now that refers to the judgment of God that passed upon the whole human race because of Adam's sin. Our text says that in Christ's death for all, all for whom he died, they died, meaning they died in effect under the judgment of God, which their substitute suffered in their place. The penalty was paid in full as if we ourselves had died and exhausted the wrath of God by our own suffering in hell. That's what's involved. You see, this demands the conclusion of what theologians call limited atonement, the fact that the atonement of Christ was intentional in its effect, in its design, which Jesus uh, declares when he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. It involves the conclusion that Christ indeed died in the place of God's elect, and only in the place of God's elect in terms of its design, in terms of its intention and what Christ actually accomplished on the cross. You see, if, if Christ died for all people, absolutely everyone, as is often taught, then all people died in him, right? We judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. In other words, if he died for all as their representative and substitute, then he suffered the death that all deserve, and he suffered it in their place. And that means that all people then already would have suffered the sentence of God against them when Jesus died. And that means, brothers and sisters, that all the world would certainly be saved. That everyone for whom he died in this way, of course, would be delivered from death and judgment. All would be saved on their death on his behalf, in fact. God would be unjust to punish them for the sins for which Christ had already suffered. You see, that's how, that's why it's so important to understand this. That the justice of God is not against me. I have no reason to fear any condemnation for God because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because that condemnation has already been spent and exhausted on my substitute. And God would be unjust to punish my sins in the Savior and then punish them again in me. It's the righteousness of God revealed at the cross that is foundational to our assurance and comfort. Christ actually paid the price. Every last penny, if you will, for every last sin that I have committed and I will commit today and I will commit in the future. You see, the logic of our text is only compelling for believers. You see, our life in Adam, our life of sin and guilt under God's judgment, 
Well, that life has already met its just penalty. We thus judge on the basis of God's sure and certain word that our old man was crucified with Christ. Death as a penalty for sin has no more claim on us. God himself has no punitive claim on us whatsoever. We are free. We are free from the condemnation that we deserved because Christ died for us and we thus judge that all died and yet we live. Now why would God give us such a life, such a new life, secured by the death of his son on our behalf? Well, we are free now with the freedom to live as as new creations. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In other words, we should now live for him, right? That's the, that's the, the corollary, the logic, the conclusion. Christ died for all. We, we thus judge that if he died for all, then, then all died so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and, and rose again. You see, those for whom Christ died always become those who live. You see, when the gospel takes hold of them, uh, they become personally united to the Savior by faith. And that means that the power of his death to redeem and the power of his resurrection life to renew them enters their own experience. And it becomes a compelling force in their minds, in their aims, in their actions. You see, brothers and sisters, the reasonable response to such amazing grace is to live for Jesus. That, see, that's, that's the conclusion that is spelled out clearly in our text. He died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You see, the life that we lived for self has met its just penalty when Jesus died, and that life which we forfeited by sin suffered the consequences in our substitute and we might say, it's gone. And yet we live. So what, what new purpose, what new reason then for living really answers to such amazing grace? In reflecting on this passage this past week, I was reminded of a song that, uh, we sang in cadets. I don't know if there are many of you that, uh, went to, uh, cadets or, Calvinettes as a child, the Christian Reformed Church had this wonderful program of, of teaching uh, boys and girls the, the, the ways of God in connection with practical skills. But I remember at the beginning of every cadet meeting, we'd sing, living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him and all that I do. And, you know, as a, what, nine, ten years old, I didn't really like to sing. And, you know, this wasn't my favorite part of the meeting. Let's get done with the, um, the singing and the Bible lesson and let's get to our crafts, right? I want to learn how to tie knots or whatever. But I remember that song. I didn't appreciate it so much at the time. 
And by the way, here's a reminder of the importance of teaching your children, whether they like it or not. Here's the importance of teaching them good songs. Because you trust that by the grace of God and the work of His Holy Spirit, those songs will be lodged in their memories and we trust in their hearts. I've talked to so many elderly over the years who uh, share with me the fact that in school, when they were in kids in Holland, they had to learn a new psalm every week. And they remember those psalms. And they're precious to them because they learned them. Then I thought as I, I looked over the words to that song that I, I bet that uh, the author of this, uh, of this hymn uh, had this passage in view because there's so many connections to this passage. Living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him, right? That, that's verse 9. We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Living for Jesus who died in my place, well, that's substitutionary, representative atonement. Bearing on Calvary, my sin and disgrace, such love constrains me to answer the call. The love of Christ compels us, Paul says. And then the refrain, O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee, for Thou in Thy atonement didst give Thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be Thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live, O Christ, for Thee alone. It's a beautiful song. captures much of the teaching of our text before us. Living for Jesus. What does it mean? What does it mean practically speaking? Well, we know from the context that for, for the Apostle Paul, it meant serving faithfully in his commission uh, and his calling as an apostle. He describes the apostolic ministry here. He describes it in view of the constant criticism that he had to face, especially from uh, uh, from Corinth. And he describes his passion as an ambassador for Christ. For him, living for Jesus meant fulfilling that office that he was given to make known this wonderful message with the goal that others would come to such a mind, such an understanding, such conviction, such newness of life, that knowing that they were redeemed in Christ, that they also should not live for themselves, but for for him who died for them. And so in his preaching and in his teaching, in his suffering, That was his aim, to bring a perishing world to reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. But you notice that in the text, he he goes beyond describing his life's passion and purpose, and he universalizes it. What is true for him, and which he pursues according to his calling, is true for all those for whom Christ died, all those who thou live, so that they should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And so whatever our office, whatever our calling and purpose in life, and it differs greatly one from another, the common passion and goal that all Christians should share is that of living for Jesus. And to apply that in terms of our daily lives. To live with this fixed aim, 
a fixed aim in the sense that it doesn't depend upon our passing feelings or it doesn't depend on our circumstances. It's the aim that belongs to children in school as well as the most elderly among us whose lives have become limited in terms of mobility and clarity of mind and stamina and energy. And yet they're called to live for Jesus. Well, practically speaking, that, that, that must mean the willingness to ask uh, what Paul asked upon his conversion, Lord, what would you have me to do? And to dare to ask that when it comes to the important choices and decisions of your life. When it comes to a new relationship in your life. Lord, what is your will? When it comes to vocational choices or aims. When it comes to educational decisions. Do you dare to ask the Lord, Lord, what would you have me to do? I am willing to be taught. Make it clear to me. And then you go to his word and you seek to study those biblical principles and priorities of the Christian life. And with a willing heart, you seek to apply them to those big decisions of life, right? But it's also something that is to guide us in the ordinary activities of life in our mundane activities of getting up when the alarm clock goes off and getting dressed and going off to work and hopefully spending some time before you go to work to acknowledge God, maybe to listen to his voice and his word for a few moments and pray to him, but to seek to do your work with honesty and integrity, to look after those children, to... uh Repeat those common, ordinary tasks of caring for them, providing meals, washing clothes, doing dishes, recognizing that this is a high calling, that your influence on these little ones has tremendous importance. And when you persevere patiently, and you do so for Jesus' sake, Know for certain that you are serving him no less than the preacher in the pulpit, no less than the person in a high position of political leadership, whatever it may be. It really matters very, very little what those differences are in terms of the fundamental pursuits of the Christian life. And that is to seek to honor the Savior. I read a sermon by Spurgeon on the healing of Peter's uh, mother-in-law and he observed that when uh, Jesus raised him, her up from her fever, she didn't go and, and preach. She probably fixed dinner because it says that she served them. And she did the ordinary common ways in which she expressed her Christian faith. That's living for Jesus. The ordinary activities of our vocation, our calling. And we need to return to this again and again and again, don't we? It says that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Well, that's what we're inclined to do yet. And what is repentance? Repentance is acknowledging the ways in which we put our own wills before that of the Lord. And we put our own self-interest above that of others. And we put our own sins above service. And we need to return again and again to this. And remember that as those who are redeemed, as those whose old life has been dealt with and judged and condemned, we're to live for the one who so redeemed us. Oh, there is, there is compelling logic here, but brothers and sisters, it's a logic that only works when it's fired and fueled and driven by love. 
The love of Christ compels us. And that's the love of Christ for us. And a belief in that love that then, yes, produces a corresponding love in our hearts for Him. But we love because He first loved us. And we need to be renewed in the sense and the wonder of that love for us. And we need to have this aim to live for Him constantly fueled, constantly motivated and directed by love. There's no greater power than love. Love obeys coldly sometimes, right? See, love isn't measured in terms of feelings and emotions. Sometimes the greatest test of our love for Jesus is doing what's right when we don't really want to. But we know that it's right. And we want to obey Him. And sometimes in the course of that obedience, the feelings come. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's how you demonstrate it. You live for me. What a high and holy calling based on the mercies of God, right? It's very similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, I plead with you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, which is your reasonable service as those who are redeemed. It's, it's really the right thing to do. How could it be any other way? That's the kind of logic that ought to influence us. May God help us to grow in the knowledge of His love, the, the width, the length, the depth of, uh, and the width, that, that love which uh, surpasses all understanding, that more and more we might be compelled by the logic of such saving love. Amen.